it doesn't really matter too much where the, the virus shows up because eventually that producer has to, he's going to have some kind of interaction with it, with another producer or, or with the, the packing plant. And so you've got, from our models, it looks like you've got a period of about 35 days when it's going to smolder. After 35 days is when things really start taking off. And so that's why for us, a few samples from lots of herds is pretty sensitive. If we can find that smoldering hotspot and stomp it out before it gets any further, that's, that's going to be the key. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions, Genesis, the first power in genetics, Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding, Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Gestal. Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestal manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system. Designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. Gestal is not just manufactured by an equipment company but by a family pork production business with a slat-level understanding. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Jeff Zimmerman, who is a faculty member at the Iowa State University College of Veterinary Medicine. How are you today, Jeff? Very good, Laura. How are you? Good. Well, we're glad to have you on today. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. And so what I'd like for you to first do is maybe just help our listeners out there uh, learn a little bit more about yourself. So would you mind just sharing a little bit about how you maybe got to where you're at today and, and just some general um, ideas about what your work is focused on? Sure. So uh, my my background was after vet school was, was in epidemiology. I worked Initially, in the pseudorabia eradication program that you might recall, some of your elder members at least might recall. Um, from that, that was, that was basically my PhD work. And then I got hired into the veterinary diagnostic lab here at Iowa State as an epidemiologist, so doing research in animal populations. And that's really been where I've been at ever since. Um, probably initially, my most of my work was with PERS, trying to characterize Bird virus, uh, transmissibility, uh, infectivity, all kinds of population-based dynamics for PERS virus. And then about 15 years ago, I started getting really interested in, in surveillance because it became obvious to me that 
we could do a lot of work under experimental conditions, but you really needed to be able to collect field data in order to, to really be able to understand what was going on. You needed bigger populations and more realistic settings to understand the true nature of, of the virus. But the problem was for surveillance is, if, if you remember, the Pseudorabies eradication program was based on bleeding pigs. And that's an extremely inefficient, expensive, arduous method of collecting population data. So uh, it would have been in, in 2005, we collected the first oral fluid samples and the results were so encouraging that that's really been a lot of where my efforts gone ever since then. Not just in PERS, but in quite a number of other uh, infectious agents of, of pigs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can remember helping you with some of those samples early on, sending you some. So, it, But it's wonderful. It, it's amazing to me how widely accepted that's been now for the industry. And um, when I share that with others that are first getting into the industry, they're like, wow, this is really easy and, yeah. and not yeah. hard to do. So um, it's wonderful technology to have for the industry. So we thank uh, you for all of that work. Thank you. Thank you. There's a lot left to be done yet. So, so. Oh, yes, oh, always. Uh, <laughs> well, one of the things that I know you're also very active in is what we call the U.S. SHIP program. And some of our audience may not be very familiar with that program. So could you maybe start with just a background as to what that program is and what it's currently doing? Sure. The, the Swine Health Improvement Plan, the SHIP plan or SHIP program, uh, really started probably almost four years ago. It was primarily the brainchild of, of uh, Dr. Roger Main, uh, who began even presenting it at NPV, uh, got some funding and began running some, some analyses, some comparisons, especially with the NPIP program. The NPIP stands for National Poultry Improvement Plan. And so there were a lot of similarities. We're both looking at population medicine, uh, health in populations, whether it's poultry and, and pigs. And so there were a lot of things that we could learn from NPIP that could apply to, to, to SHIP. And so uh, the SHIP is, is our effort to apply some of those lessons from NPIP to swine health. Uh, it's basically uh, the, the program we're, we're still working on, we're, we're a year into what's a pilot project that's been funded by USDA. Uh, we had our first House of Delegates meeting in Des Moines, August 21st and 22nd. And uh, we're kind of taking our first initial steps at organization. So if you look at the history of NPIP, the National Poultry Improvement Plan, they began about, about 1935. So they have 85 years of experience uh, in the control of, of issues, health issues related to poultry. And so SHIP is beginning to address those issues as well. Our SHIP is basically has, has three uh, initiatives. One is, is surveillance or, or is better said sampling and testing. One is biosecurity and one is traceback. And if we have those, those arms in place, it puts us in a better position to deal with uh, foreign animal diseases if they were to show up in the US. And of course, African swine fever is a particular concern, but classical swine fever, which we eliminated from the US in 1978, 
is also a concern because it's it's still in populations that are close to us, close to our borders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something we tend to forget. We've been talking yeah. about ASF so much lately, but CSF right. is is equally as concerning. So for those of um, the audience that may not really be familiar with the NPIP, what does that mean from a producer standpoint? Are they looking to buy in? Is it like a checkoff to support? Do they submit samples? What what kind of look does that have for our swine industry producer? Yeah, for, for the swine industry producer, there's probably going to be some, you know, well, first of all, I'd say that that uh, SHIP is driven by the involvement of producers, uh, packers, USDA, and academicians. The the House of Delegates meeting, uh, like like I just mentioned, we had that first meeting in, in August of this year, uh, and that included all those all those representatives, re- representatives of the USDA, of producers, packers, and academicians. And so, it's a way to to come together, uh, address specific health problems. The most pressing, of course, right now for us is African swine fever, um, and then reach some kind of mutual decision. Um, and so it it relies on the collaboration of a, that group, and uh, it's not charging specific fees or anything. But it but it does if you're going to be certified in in ship, there will be certain requirements that you need to to maintain. Okay, very good. So we're talking about each site being certified in ship as as a sellable product. Is that what we're looking at? Much like. PQA certification or something along those lines? Something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. PQA be, would be a good analogy. There's there's uh, no no requirement. You're not you're not required to be to be a ship uh, participant, but certification brings benefits. OK, perfect. And so something else I heard in that conversation was traceability. And so we would anticipate then if you're going to be a producer certified um, in the ship program, you will have some form of traceability to your animals to the packer. Would that be fair? Yes, that's that's fair. Yeah, there's got to be some mechanism by which you can track what's what's been what has been the movement of your of your particular animals, right? Mm-hmm. And then, as far as um, surveillance goes, is that again just their general submissions? Are there going to be monthly submission requirements, or are you just sampling? you know, blood samples from market hogs as they're coming in and that's part of surveillance. What does that really look like with the SHIP program? It's with the SHIP program, it, it looks a little bit different. What, what, and the rules have not been put in place. Part of what's happened in the August meeting was the, the agreement that we'll, we would move forward with a, with a group to study how that might, might happen. What, what SHIP has proposed is a very minimal sampling numbers. Um, and by that, I mean, um, in, in peacetime, or say in the absence of African swine fever, classical swine fever, collect samples from five animals. Uh, and those samples would be very simple samples, uh, oral swabs, or uh, it could be blood swabs like people collect a lot, or it could be an oral fluid sample like people collect a lot. Uh, put those in one tube, so we're looking at a pooled sample, and send them in. It turns out that even though we're, we're actually using very minimal sampling numbers, then when you put those all together on a regional basis, 
the likelihood of detection, the probability of detecting, in this case, African flame fever or classical flame fever is extremely high. And so it's, it's the power of uh, putting all those numbers together that, that really gets us a good benefit. And it actually reduces uh, any kind of imposition or cost to producers. One of the things I remember too, is that we were doing surveillance a lot with tonsils, for example, for CSF. And so anytime we submit samples for diagnostic evaluation, we try to grab the tonsils to help with that type of surveillance. So is SHIP gonna be using diagnostic labs and the general surveillance samples that they're getting as, as part of your program, or is that going to be still separate? And so just producers that are involved in the SHIP certification will be sending in those, those samples. Yeah. At this point in time, those two lines of samples have not been merged. Okay. But of course, as I mentioned, USDA is part of SHIP. So uh, that could be a possibility in, in the future. At the, at the present time, um, the ship sampling is under study and um, the God tonsil program is still, still in place. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. I think that certainly will help some of our, our veterinarians in particular start thinking about sampling and, and so forth. Will there be any other expectations as far as a certification goes that you're aware of currently for our, for our farmers? No, it's basically um, if you have to have a PIN number and you need to sign up for the program, but it, the, the requirements beyond that are, are, are minimal. Um, if, I could, if I could say a little, just a little bit more about sampling, because um, sampling, surveillance sampling has been kind of arduous for a lot of us for, for a long time. If, if you actually go back far enough, in the classical swine fever eradication program in the U.S., the plan was to test every pig in a herd, if you can imagine. So they would test every, every pig, and that was how you figured out if you had classical swine fever or not. And then in 1986 in Peoria, it's a, it's a date I remember because there was this meeting of all these uh, movers and shakers in, in veterinary medicine at this meeting to decide how they're gonna sample for, for pseudorabies eradication. And there were the people who wanted to continue sampling every pig in the herd, if you can imagine. And then there's uh, kind of the new wave that wanted to go with representative sampling. And that's when we started talking about sampling 30 pigs. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until till the mid eighties that we started thinking about sampling some of the pigs and not all the pigs. And so we're, we're kind of looking at the next iteration. And that by that, I mean, 30 is more than we need for ship if we add all these results together. So if all the farms in the county or all the farms in some region uh, aggregate their testing results, the, you, each person has to do less, but the results are actually much more sensitive than collecting 30 per farm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes absolute sense. Um, not that long ago, we were having this discussion about how many <laughs> samples to use and what right. appropriate pooling sizes were. Um, and particularly, yeah. I think it's important to keep reiterating because as we've talked about in the past, the technology has changed, the sensitivity has changed. Yeah. We've certainly have done a better job of refining our technique. And so yeah. those numbers should, in, in a sense, be dwindling from the every pig to, to right. five in a region and, and right. give us that feel. Um, I think though, it's still, 
raises a little bit of concern when we start talking, particularly about a foreign animal disease and, and the thought of sampling five pigs in a region versus multiple pigs within a barn. So is there any way that we can maybe address that issue? Because I think that, you know, particularly with ASF and the fact that it moves fairly quietly for a while in a barn, yeah, yeah. has a lot of people very concerned about surveillance. Yeah, yeah. Well, Marie Colhane, Dr. Marie Colhane and her group of Minnesota are actually looking at, they're, they're, they're creating estimates of the probability of detecting if you target samples in a barn. So what's the probability of detecting African swine fever? If you just sample some of those, those not doing well pigs in the, in the, in the barn. And so they're, they're developing those, those estimates over time. And so um, we're taking that to the next level and say, okay, beyond the barn, how about in the county? You know, if I, if I get all those samples from those sick pigs in those barns, what's my likelihood of detecting in the county or the region, whatever that region might be. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes pretty powerful. I'd, I'd separate out what SHIP is trying to do also from USGA controlled efforts. So I can, if I can get those samples, I can guarantee you, or I can give you a strong assurance, maybe not guarantee, but I can give you strong assurance that the region is negative for African swine fever, classical swine fever, whatever we want to look for. Once there's a positive, we actually, we say a non-negative because the VDLs, the, the non-labs like Iowa State or Minnesota or South Dakota, we can't call the sample positive for classical swine fever or African swine fever, but we can say it's non-negative. Then it goes to USDA and USDA starts their investigation. So their investigation is separate from what SHIP is doing. SHIP is saying the region's negative. If any of the ship labs say, hmm, I got a non-negative sample, then that goes to USDA and USDA takes over. And, and hopefully we're early in the game and their efforts are highly effective. But again, if, if the ship trace back and biosecurity is in place, as well as sampling and testing, our, we have a much stronger assurance that we're gonna come on this early and be successful in eliminating a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's something I continue to hear in the industry is should we just be sampling all the blood that's coming into the market facilities because, you know, that would might give us a good clue. And when we think back to the PED era and we look back at some of the plasma, right. it started to let us know when it actually came into the U.S. versus maybe when we were truly seeing it in the industry in terms of clinical symptoms. Right. Um so I think that's important to really continue to discuss that surveillance and, yep. you know, how often and how frequently are we checking various parts of, of the country? Yep. Um, because I think, you know, again, we argue, well, if you're in Iowa or North Carolina where there's pig heavy areas, then we're doing a lot more surveillance there just by sheer number versus maybe other parts of the United States. And, and I think that's concerning to people is that, well, what if it sneaks in in these, these areas that maybe aren't being sampled as frequently just because of numbers of pigs in a location? Is there any way that we can maybe talk about how we should do surveillance when we think about just pig population density? So we've actually been, we've been looking at some models that address that issue. What happens if African swine fever shows up in a pig dense area as opposed to a less dense area. And we're not finished, but the preliminary analysis make it look like it doesn't really matter too much 
where the, the virus shows up because eventually that producer has to, he's going to have some kind of interaction with it, with another producer or, or with the, the packing plant. And so you've got, from our models, it looks like you've got a period of about 35 days when it's going to smolder. After 35 days is when things really start taking off. And so that's why for us, lots of, a few samples from lots of herds is pretty sensitive. If we can find that smoldering hotspot and stomp it out before it gets any further, that's, that's going to be the key. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, in terms of slatter, in terms of, of uh, sampling a slaughter, we actually have really effective methods for sam sampling a slaughter. Oral fluids work pretty well. Uh, pigs in Larridge are perfectly happy to chew on a rope. We can get oral fluids from them pretty well. The, and I can't speak for the packing industry or for packers, but I know that I would prefer to have African swine fever detected before it gets to my plant, because if it gets to my plant, I've got to shut it down, decontaminate. It's not going to be easy. It's going to, it's going to be complex and it's going to be costly. So if we as an industry can, can detect our problems before they get to the packing plant, we're going to be much better off. Uh, we don't want packing plants to close. That's going to create big problems for us. Um, there are places that are talking about uh, collecting samples at slaughter. Uh, Latin America, I've talked to some people in Latin America, and for them, it makes much more sense because they have lots of small packing plants and lots of small producers that they could detect that way. But for us, I think it's probably not a good idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, how often, and maybe I missed this from our earlier conversation, but how often would you sample a region? So what we proposed uh, and what went through the first House of Delegates meeting was sampling once a year in, the, in, the, in peacetime. So in the absence of African swine fever, classical swine fever, once a year is sufficient because just make sure that people remember how to collect the sample. They've got the supplies on hand. You know, there's just testing the, the system. It's basically uh, kind of like turning your car on when it's cold outside, you know, let it warm up. So the car's already warmed up. Once something happens, then we're proposing, it, it depends somewhat on what kind of production system you have. So for uh, breeding herds, for example, we're gonna ask for, for well, I, should, I should go back. Let me go back a little bit. So the SHIP program is based on three risk levels. Risk level one is no African swine fever, no classical swine fever in the U.S. Risk level two is it's someplace in the U.S., but it's not in my state or my region. And risk level three, it's in my state or region, but it, I'm not in a control area. So USD is not involved. The sampling uh, numbers are about the same for those different, but it's sampling frequency that changes. So level one, there's no African swine fever, no classical swine fever in the US, sample once a year, just to make sure that everything is in place. Once I get to level two, so African swine fever, classical swine fever is in the US, but not in my state, then things go up a little bit, sampling once a month. And then level three, it's in my state. Depending on the kind of operation, I may be sampling every two weeks. My numbers go up slightly. Not very much, sampling numbers go up slightly. Um, but the frequency is what really is affected once every two weeks in most cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what 
be intriguing is that frequency, um, particularly yep. right now, people are very nervous, um, yep. as we would expect with, with where right. ASF is located. And so I can hear in, in my own mind, some people arguing, well, once a year in a region may not be enough, but is it, it's really more, well, this producer is taking a sample in this region once a year, this producer might be taking that sample next month in this region for their once a year. So it's not really this right. county is getting measured once a year type of situation. Is that right. a fair thought process? That's fair. And that's going to be membership is organized at the state level. So how they, how they expect their, their participants to fulfill their responsibility is going to be up to them. Hopefully not everybody submits their samples on December 31st. Right. Right. We're hoping that people spread it out over the course of the year, but it's going to be up to the state level organizations to help that happen. It could be like your driver's license. You know, my, my driver's license is due on my birthday, you know, my birthday yes. month. So something more reasonable like that, that spreads things out would be good. Could be by premise ID. Right. Certification and so forth. Right. What, what can our veterinarians do to help with this program? You know, my, my experience is um, the biggest thing we need help on is simply getting the word out. Uh, you know, why are we doing this? What is the need? How does it work? What's going to be the impact? Um, I think I think it's easy to justify the need, but that education component, that education component is is uh, is difficult. It takes time. People are busy and they don't necessarily want to be informed about things that don't immediately impact them. I can, I can almost envision it where a producer signs up for the program, but then it lays on the veterinarian during one of their annual herd visits to be yeah. the person to remember to send those samples in. Right. Right. And maybe I'm wrong in that, but you know, again, while it's oral fluids and it might be very easy to do, you're absolutely right. It, just with the veterinarian being there and they naturally are collecting samples, I, I somewhat can see that becoming part of their responsibility. Yeah, and for, for your listeners, there, there's a SHIP website. So they, they just Google US SHIP, they'll find uh, probably more information than they want to look at it one sitting, so. Now that would be wonderful. And I think that's that would be a great place for both the veterinarians and the producers to start. Yep. Yep. to figure out what's next and what's coming um, for them. But that's that's really exciting. And it's great to hear that we have some some very active surveillance programs going on in the United States beyond just yeah. people yeah. obviously in the barn looking for signs. Right. I think I think the, the good thing and it it was not was not me, but the people who started leading this, this project started a couple of years ago. So now as African swine fever gets closer, we have something in place uh, that could really be highly useful, uh, could save us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, as we kind of finish up our conversation today, are there any key takeaway points that you would like our audience to remember from today or anything that we've missed that you would like to cover? Uh, I would just, again, remind them, go ahead and look at that website just to see what US SHIP is about. Um, it's, this is not a government program. This is a producer-driven program, participant-driven program, veterinary-driven program. So it's it's gonna rely on those of us who are in the industry to make a move forward. It's not a 
a government program coming out of Washington D.C. It's is coming out of out of uh, people who who are uh, invested in swine production. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's, it's an opportunity to be proactive rather than reactive from yeah. both the producer and the veterinarian standpoint, which is yeah. always a good place to be. Right. Absolutely. It is time to our famous three. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Ivonic stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Ivonic turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Well, as we wrap up our time today, Dr. Zimmerman, we like to ask our speakers a couple of questions that are very common across all of our podcasts. The first one we like to ask you is obviously being involved in swine. What is your best go-to swine resource book or website or, or whatever you're currently using? Well, of course, Diseases of Swine is the definitive text. And so, um, that's, that's what it, it's right, got it right up here in the shelf. And so that's what I go to. But I also use, uh, I use a lot of pr primary referee uh, publications. So I'm using Google Scholar not to find things. And then I track things from there. The, I'm always looking for the most recent information on whatever topic, topic it is that I'm, that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good point. I don't think I've met an, a vet yet whose favorite book is not The Diseases of Swine. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I'll admit we have a couple of copies in our house as well. So it, it's a great, it's a great resource, but I agree while it's, while we continue to have new versions of it coming out, you know, using those, those refereed websites to find the most recent information is going to be critical. So right. that's a very, very good point. Um, the other question we like to ask is when you're not thinking about pigs, is there anything that you like to read on the side that you would recommend to our our audience, whether it's for enjoyment or for professional development or anything like that. I, so I have a horrible confession to make, which is uh, I read all day long. You know, unlike some people, I, I'm not out in the truck, you know, looking at stuff. So I spend a lot of time reading and writing. And when I go home, I like to be outside. I, I uh, we have a small, small place. We've got 10 acres. And and so I like I like to plant trees and work on trees and, and be outside. So mm -hmm. that's probably my my favorite pastime. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that. I know. Certainly when you're writing a manuscript, the last thing you want to do is, is read at night. Yeah. So. Go home and read some more. <laughs> yeah, you do. You need to be outside at that point for exactly. sure. <laughs> Especially right now, the weather is just beautiful. Yes. It's just gorgeous on my window. Yes. Yes. 
Well, the the last question I like to ask our our speaker really comes back to if you think about people in the industry that that you define as successful and success can can vary in everybody's mind as to how you want to define it. But what characteristic stands out in your mind when you think about the people that you have looked up to over the years or that you feel are, are very successful today? For me, there's so I work with graduate students a lot. And, and those, so there's really two things that I like to help them develop. And I think one thing is communication skills, whether it's written or oral. Um, you know, we have different strengths, but to try to improve your oral communication skills and your written communication skills is, is critical. You need to be able to present your ideas on paper or orally in a logical fashion that makes sense to people, is persuasive. Uh, if, if you can't do that, you're, it really is a huge handicap. So that's probably that's probably the, the number one thing. The second thing is is to develop analytical or, or uh, statistical skills, and those again I I try to encourage in in my graduate student, students. I I'm not particularly strong in statistics myself, but I like to work with people. So we have excellent statisticians on our on our team. We work with all the time and. Uh, you can't know everything, but at least to know what you don't know and then look for those analytical people that can help you is, is huge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, those are two great characteristics to, to be thinking about. And certainly communication, whether it's the one-on-ones or in large yeah. settings, it's invaluable yeah. um, for sure. Well, we do want to thank you again for spending time with us today. For our audience, uh, again, this is Dr. Jeff Zimmerman, who's with the Iowa State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. So thank you again for your time and your wonderful insight on the SHIP program. Thank you, Dr. Greiner. Have Be a in great touch. day. Okay, okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.